This is episode 93 of AA Beyond Belief, the podcast, and I'm your host, John S. Today's episode, I'll be speaking with Dr. Ray Baker, an expert in the field of addiction medicine. Recently, Dr. Baker served on a national expert committee for the Canadian Center of Substance Abuse, where he helped design and analyze Canada's National Life and Recovery Survey. Dr. Baker was the opening speaker at the Widening the Gateway Conference in Tacoma, Washington, and he will be speaking at the International Conference of Secular AA to be held from August 24th through August 26th in Toronto, Ontario. Without further ado, my conversation with Dr. Ray Baker. Ray, welcome. How are you doing? I'm, I'm well. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's great to have you here. It's really interesting to speak with somebody like you that has a background a personal background in recovery with 12-step programs, but also has the uh, professional background as a doctor who practiced addiction medicine. What's it like for you to have those two perspectives? Well, it varies. Early on, on in my career, when I went from family medicine to addiction medicine, it was very helpful because we didn't learn very much about addictions in medical school and in uh, internship and hospital training. And so what I learned from AA was really, and, and from being around people in recovery, was really my foundation for getting motivated and, and understanding recovery. So the addiction medicine I learned was on a, was on a network of recovery-oriented care, which is nowadays is an important distinction. I learned about addiction not just from the a pharmacological, uh, physiological, uh, a disease point of view, but from a recovery point of view, which has stood me uh, well. Um, it's interesting. I, I um, heard, actually, I was listening to a talk. Actually, it came from the Austin Convention. There were a couple of doctors that were speaking on addiction medicine. I was kind of surprised that they talked about how little um, is taught in medical school about treating addiction. And I don't know if that's changed much, but um, that was the case that they're experiencing. It is. I had the honor uh, between 1990 and 1995 of bringing in the first extensive addiction medicine curriculum at the University of British Columbia. And it was very popular with students. And as a matter of fact, it won a national award for its quality. However, interestingly, as the... Uh, curricula changed and was updated and and and, cl- and clinical studies were increased academic uh, uh, classroom teaching was decreased it fell off the curriculum completely and so we're back in Canada to not having undergraduate addiction medicine taught which is kind of criminal and the the other thing is at a graduate level with the residents, and fellows in addiction medicine, the brand of addiction medicine they're learning now is much more entry-level initiation or pharmacological treatment. So they learn an awful lot about the disease and the brain disease of addiction, but it's been reduced to 
focusing on a pharmacological fix, which is okay as long as it leads to what we know as as you know the breadth and depth of recovery. Mm-hmm. But they learn very little about recovery, even at a fellow uh, fellowship level, at least here in Canada. That's really interesting, the difference between treating addiction and recovering from it. And you, you mentioned in your talk in Tacoma that, you know, there might be a role for medical, a medical solution or a medical treatment right. to a certain extent, but that it doesn't really assist with the recovery. There's, there's some good science out there that shows treatment serves a, a very important role. And most types of treatment, whether it's Intensive inpatient treatment, intensive outpatient treatment, other forms of psychotherapeutic treatment or pharmacological treatment, they share the, the common uh, desire to get people started or initiation of recovery. But if that's all people get with this chronic disease, uh, it's not enough and it doesn't lead them very far. It's followed with high rates of relapse in people who are sick enough to really need treatment. What really does correlate with long-term recovery is once initiation of treatment occurs, whether people get there on their own or through treatment, the thing that really correlates with being successful in the long run is affiliation with a mutual support group, predominantly 12-step, largely because that's what's out there. We don't, we just don't have the data on the other uh, mutual support group programs, but the evidence is really accumulating that for 12-step programs, people who affiliate and participate in the programs, the fellowship, and the incredible depth of therapeutic assistance they get there uh, have much, much higher rates of long-term sustained remission. So the further out you go from treatment, the less important treatment is and the more the more important involvement with the mutual support group is. That kind of makes sense to me just from my own experience and observations. Um, but I also read a book a couple of years ago that I found pretty interesting. It was written by Dr. Joseph Nowinski. It was called um, It Works If You Work It. So he was involved in a study here in the United States called Project Match, where they looked at um, 12-step facilitation treatment. And he actually wrote the, or was part of a group that wrote the 12-step facilitation handbook. And it was yeah. kind of interesting. In, in his book, he wrote about, oh, the uh, the challenges of studying the effectiveness of 12-step program, but that there really is data um, behind the effectiveness of your chances of uh, sustained sobriety being improved by participation in a support group. Yes. The, and, and the strength of the data uh, is is getting more so all the time. Mm-hmm. Project Match was was the biggest study ever done of its kind. And, and it for some people, it was very disappointing because it, it showed that expensive, intensive, more intensive treatment delivered by mental health professionals did not result in any better outcomes than 12-step facilitation therapy, which it's important not to confuse. Sometimes I read writers who confuse 12-step facilitation therapy, which is a kind of treatment, with 12-step. They're, they're very, very different, of course, as you know. Uh, 12-step facilitation therapy is a treatment, which means there's a a therapist, a therapeutic relationship, and a patient. And the whole idea with 12-step facilitation therapy is to overcome barriers or gaps to get people to go and keep going to meetings, to 12-step meetings, whereas 
when people go to meet at AA or NA, that's not treatment. That that's uh, that's very different. There isn't a therapeutic relationship between a treater and a person, and it and that's where recovery and treatment really distinguish themselves. And yeah, that the quality of the evidence since 2006 is becoming more and more robust, so that anybody who says, as the Cochrane Review said in 2006, and is still often quoted when it said, what we lack is good quality evidence uh, demonstrating the efficacy of 12-step programs. What they really said is, and I feel a little bit guilty of being part of the problem, having been out there treating people with addiction since the 1980s, is that there's a lack of evidence. It, it doesn't say that AA and NA don't work. What it says is there's lack of good quality evidence, which was true at the time. But since 2006, when they wrote that, uh, that summary of, of opinion, on review of the evidence, some really good work has been done. And I outlined a little bit of it in my talk in Tacoma by people like Dr. Leanne uh, Katsugas and by uh, a number of other people who've documented, John Kelly in Boston, who documented the depth uh, and uh, the wealth of evidence that's, uh, that's accumulated. The evidence for 12-step efficacy is greater than any pharmacological treatment out there. So, Why do you think it is? What, what, what do you think it is that's so effective? Is it the socialization that we have with one another? Is it the actual process of going through the steps? Um, what, what do you think it is? That's a really good question. And I, I would be speaking beyond the science. We, mm-hmm. we certainly know that it works. Mm-hmm. And we also know that there are a, a wide variety of modalities woven into mutual, into 12-step work. So there's, there's psychoeducation, there's non-chemical coping skills that we learn, mm-hmm. there's emotional maturation, learning accountability and responsibility. There's more intangible, some might call them spiritual, mm-hmm. effects of being accepted into a group of people. There's something about when people get together. Human beings, when they isolate, they get sick and die. They, they don't, they're mentally and physically less healthy. Mm-hmm. When you put people together, they do better. Mm-hmm. And I don't think we can entirely understand what is that about. But there's even more. I mean, for some people, one of the reasons that the secular movement, agnostic and atheist movement within AA is so interesting, and it's been there since the beginning of 12-step programs, during the early formative stages in the 1930s, the non-spiritual, non-religious group were vocal and involved and did very well, thank you very much, without a religious or spiritual, overtly spiritual content, Mm -hmm. which tells us that there are no, but for some other people, and our Life and Recovery Survey showed that, for some other people, the religious or the spiritual or whatever you want to call it aspects are vitally important to them. So what that tells me is that this is a very rich therapeutic process with, and, and I can recognize other modalities that are used, for instance, Project Match compared three different modalities, Mm -hmm. cognitive behavioral therapy, 
motivational enhancement therapy and 12-step facilitation therapy. Well, all three of those are heavily woven through 12-step programs. And, and Rudolf Moos, who has studied recovery from addiction and, and, and uh, mutual support group programs for many, many, many years, has identified at least four therapeutic processes woven through 12-step programs, giving theoretical underpinning to why they work. But if you get down to what I think is the most important one, I think it's just, it's something about people getting together and caring for each other. It's, 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 it's basically love, I think. That's actually how I kind of see it that way, too. Um, we probably all have that memory of that time in our life where we realized that we needed help. And I think most of us, or a lot of us anyway, describe it as, as really feeling alone and isolated and, and it's kind of a despair. And then we find this group of people who understand us. And that's what, that's what really helped me so much, I think, is hiding my problem for these, all those years and suddenly walking into a door of AA in my in my case and listening to people who understood me and and it was just it was a it was an amazing experience and I think I was driven to come back because of that yeah I went through the steps and everything and I think that they're useful but what I learned from all the many people that I met in all those AA meetings it was so more valuable than I could ever put a price on it's just yeah, that, John that was that was my experience too I remember almost I, I think I did weep with relief uh, at at the 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 combined feelings of I'm no longer alone and 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 I'm not a, a shameful. Uh, it relieved my my shame uh, and and continued to do so for quite some time. But in order for that to happen, there was more than just fellowship. There was storytelling mm. and. And I think you could just study the effect of telling stories, telling our stories, listening to each other's stories. I, I think that's a rich, rich source of, of a study by itself. Hey, you talked about the survey. You were um, a member of the Canadian Center on Substance Abuse, and you were involved in a survey of uh, people in recovery. Can you talk about that survey a little bit about what and what what you learned from it? Uh, what it involved? Just okay. I, I was part of uh, a group that was formed in 2015. The federal government of Canada uh, was feeling kind of desperate about what to do about the growing opioid epidemic at the time. And they, they struck this national committee, a, a national summit on recovery. Uh, United States, you had done it some time before. And so people from across Canada who were involved in treatment and our fledgling recovery movement were called together to come up with some ideas about recovery in Canada and to give the government some guidance about where to go from there. And it was brought out that United States Australia and the UK had already done a life in recovery survey, which was looking at their population of people in recovery to find out more about who they are, what they look like, what they did in order to enter and sustain recovery, and what it's like now, what they're, as citizens, what, what are their attributes. And so 
I, I was fortunate enough to be assigned to the uh, expert advisory group to help the CCSA in designing, administering, and analyzing this survey. So we put it out. Now, it was, it was done online as a, a computerized internet survey, which if you're a scientist, you, you'd say, aha, there's a source of some bias there because the people who, who would participate as respondents in the survey are people who are motivated, who see themselves as in recovery and who would have the wherewithal to complete an online survey. And those are all valid criticisms, but it's still with those in mind. It's the same methodology that was used in the three other countries, and it still gives us some good information. So we looked at, and we, we had, uh, so it was, a, it was administered in 2016. We got 855 respondents, which for our population of 30 million people isn't bad. And, and we, we analyzed, we looked at um, how, you know, things like what was their drug of choice? What was the age of first use? What was the age of, of addiction? What they define recovery as, and then what they found helpful for entering recovery, what they found helpful for sustaining recovery. And then we looked at what their lives are like now, as far as level of function, healthcare uh, utilization, their overall health, their quality of life, their, their giving back, their tax paying, their debts, their use of the legal system. And, and so it, it provided us with a wealth of really, really useful data. Some of it that countered um, popular sort of beliefs. What, did, what was there in there that, that surprised you or that might have countered those beliefs? Well, there were a number of things. One was things that wouldn't surprise you or me, for instance, the age of first use and the age that addiction occurs. If you wait, if you're going to initiate prevention, you've got to do it early because kids start using in their mid-teens or early teens and addiction has occurred. It's a, it's a disease of adolescence. Canada is in the process of, of legalizing marijuana as I speak. And and the interesting thing is that marijuana will still be an illicit drug for adolescents because the age of legal use will be over 19. And that's addiction is pretty much the median is around 19. So it's already occurred by then. So it's uh, the increased availability, of course, is going to increase use just as it did when prohibition ended for alcohol. So we're going to see some interesting outcomes. So that was one myth. Another one is people would people have a nihilistic approach to addiction and they say, well, treatment doesn't really work. Addiction, it's kind of pathetic because everybody keeps relapsing. Well, that's not true. In our respondents of the 855 people who responded, 51% of them did not have a single relapse. So Hmm. But yeah, but the people who you keep seeing back at treatment, of course, are the ones who keep relapsing. The people who end up in treatment to begin with are the ones whose own measures have already failed. The, those who could get well using their their AA group or uh, a private counselor or 
many, many other uh, methods to increase their levels of what we call recovery capital were already selected out. So, so there's that was really, really important to to realize that the majority of people can and do recover, and and they can sustain recovery without relapse. And those who did relapse, the majority of them within a two or three relapses were into sustain. Uh, long term. The other findings, again, you won't find surprising is that we become quite successful, happy, uh, healthier than the general population contributing members of society. And that's really important with my agenda uh, because that gets government and uh, government's attention. We're not using, we're not using precious healthcare resources. Uh, we're giving back and we're voting. You know, you mentioned something as you were describing this that reminded me of your talk in um, Tacoma. You said um, you were talking about how addiction has occurred when you're talking about um, at, you, at 19 or so forth, when we're younger. And you, you mentioned something in your talk that I found interesting. You said that that addiction changes the um, genes or something it's a, like a it's a genetic change and then once that happens that it's like a it, that's the that's the addiction and that's a permanent sort of a situation am right. i understanding that right there's an old japanese saying first the the man takes a drink then the drink takes a drink then the drink takes the man mm-hmm. and it it represents the process of addiction rather well. And it also represents a larger change that happens with many pharmacological uh, fixes when they're taken for a long period of time. Mm -hmm. The human body has this incredible ability through homeostasis to maintain an internal environment that's constant, that's consistent. So there are many feedback loops built in to keep the chemistry just the same. So we tend to be reductionist. We don't know that much. We still don't know that much about the neurobiology, the neurochemistry uh, of the body and especially of the brain, but we know a little bit. And we know about, we've learned in the last 40 years about neurotransmitters. And we discovered that, aha, in certain conditions in depression, there's things like serotonin and dopamine and norepinephrine that are depleted. And in the disease of addiction, it seems to be the final common path in addiction appears to be a deficit in the dopaminergic, the dopamine-mediated system of the mesolimbic or the reward system in the brain, part of the brain that's responsible in part for hedonic tone and reward. And so when we, and, and those of us with addiction discovered that early on that that we we used our drugs of choice or our behaviors of choice because they they caused that part of our brain to go squirt to mm-hmm. to to work and and so we we do it and and medications can be used to change these neuro levels of neurotransmitters and initially it works mm-hmm. so the reason we used our alcohol or marijuana or whatever our drug of choice was wasn't because it was a problem it was because it was a solution it worked and it mm-hmm. made us feel better and and so we did it and so but eventually by definition that's the definition of addiction is a component of it stops working it requires more to get the same effect and it, it causes harm we keep doing it despite the fact that it causes harm because in our mind at least there's enough benefit built in to outweigh the harm 
our logic may be a little bit off because of defenses. So someone looking at us might say, no, no, his, his consequences are way worse than his benefits. But from our logic, our, our internal perspective, it's still worth doing until, until it's not, until we reach that point that some people call hitting bottom or that momentary awareness that the costs outweigh the benefit. Now, what happened, though, when we continued to use the drug is first of all, there's an adaptation that occurs at the neurotransmitter. And that, that adaptation is the neurotransmitter will decrease its sensitivity or decrease its production. In other words, it's going to try to get back to the way it was because that's homeostasis. So there'll be local adaptations. And the way you know that has occurred is because you develop tolerance, it takes more drug to get the same effect, or you get withdrawal. When you stop taking the drug, you get stereotypical symptoms that are exact opposite of the effects of the drug. So if the drug was a sedative, you feel agitated, you feel insomnia, irritability, you might even get seizures. So that's the second, that's that's the drink taking a drink. Mm -hmm. So the drink, the drink took a drink. But then with prolonged use, there's a more sinister change that occurs. Mm -hmm. And this new science of the last a little more than a decade of epigenetic, where we learn that our, our code that 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 uh, operates our equipment, our, our everything that happens in our body, uh, all of our enzyme systems, all of our functions are governed by proteins, and proteins are synthesized based on a code that comes from our DNA, and that's intracellular internuclei machinery well that can get changed can get adapted by environmental factors by pharmacological factors by alcohol and other drugs so with continued continued use there are changes in gene expression don't know exactly how it happens we know some of the mediating molecules that happen but what then we've got is a change an epigenetic change, in other words, it's the actual DNA isn't isn't altered, but how it expresses itself, gene expression, is altered, and this seems to be more irreversible. It's only partially reversible. So once that switch has occurred, then once a pickle, you can't go back to being a cucumber, the model that was used to help explain alcoholism. And, and and that, the really scary thing about epigenetics is that it appears to be transmissible to the next generation uh-huh. in, cer- in certain cases. So, so we're, it's, it's really quite spooky, not just with alcohol or other drugs, but when we look at the amount of medication we're doing with other drugs that can cause these epigenetic changes that change the function of the organism and change it somewhat permanently if you take them for long enough. So so that's one of the scary things. And that's why 32 years later, I'm still going to meetings and I'm still mm-hmm. I'm still working uh, using all of the things that I found helpful in my own recovery to not just not go back to using alcohol and other drugs, but to maintain my level of hedonic tone to feel good if I can't use drug. Isn't that interesting how it could actually, that once you have that, I guess, genetic mutation, that that can actually be passed on. Yeah. And and I I don't, I'm not saying that addiction, earning addiction is necessarily transmissible genetically. Mm -hmm. We, We just know that epigenetics 
in some cases can affect the next generation and we're we just don't know it it it, it's it's quite scary though yeah it really is that's very it's very interesting it's it's good information to have though it's 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 something that um i think that those that are um, responsible for setting policy for you know treatment and drug enforcement and so forth might want to take into account so anyway so let's talk about your experience in tacoma what you thought about that, your takeaway from that entire experience. And then I'd like to go into some of the issues that you see with AA that could be problematic for our future and any hope that you might have for, for that. But you want to talk about Tacoma? What? Oh, it was wonderful. <laughs> it was, uh, it, I, I'm relatively new to the, to the AA, to AA's uh, secular atheists and agnostic free thinkers splinter group. And it's not a splinter group at all. I, I, that's the wrong way to describe it because it's been there since, since the beginning. Most reassuring thing about it is that it's very much AA and it's very much from within. It's not an, it's not an, an external destructive force it's a, it's an internal force which which i now see as potentially very corrective and very therapeutic for mainstream aa i, I think i'll give you a little bit of background on how i ended up at tacoma since, since i don't describe myself necessarily out loud as an atheist agnostic i think i would describe myself as a secular humanist but i in 1989 or 1990 I was attending AA meetings and I was at a meeting and my sponsor happened to be at the same meeting and they were just reading this new blue card that was and it was being it was being read with relish and and by somebody who was enjoying the rigidity of it was saying, please confine your your comments to only your struggles with alcohol and it was it was meant to be it it felt like it was exclusive it right. felt like it was rigid exclusive and my old sponsor may he rest in peace was kind of a rebellious old guy who didn't like to be confined and told what to do so we left that meeting and he says we're starting another meeting and it's going to be there's not going to be a lot of rules and so it was we we did and it was called as you are and it's still running it's still very healthy 30 years later and it's basically based upon as you are it's uh, definitely an aa group however if you've got issues you need to talk about talk about them there are no rules as far as and as a matter of fact even the format of the group is without rules if it's up to the uh, chairman of the night the chairperson to set the format and you can't do it wrong so uh, because we're, we're we're based upon tolerance and acceptance and and so that's just and we've attracted we've always attracted people who were kind of outliers who really were attracted to aa but didn't feel comfortable with some of the dogma some of the rigidity and so we've got a lot of old time sobriety and probably the majority of us are agnostic a lot of professionals at it. And so I, that that was my brand of AA for the last 30 years, and I was very comfortable with it, and it didn't occur to me that it was different than mainstream. Except when I travel, I go to other meetings, and I sometimes find some rigidity that I... And, and it seemed to be a growing sense of rigidity. Yeah. Some religiosity, some... But I see the the religiosity 
more funny, it's more in the States than in Canada. But I see it as just part of that crystallization, that growing rigidity that I don't think I used to see so much in in AA. And and so when I went to a couple of nearby meetings that were just starting up um, secular uh, atheist agnostic meetings, I felt very much at home. And it was there that I got invited to talk at Tacoma. I felt like a bit of an imposter because I'm not going as an, a member of, you know, of, yeah. of an AA uh, agnostic meeting, but uh, just as a person in AA and an addiction medicine doc. Mm-hmm. And so it's to be given that speaking spot, I felt a little bit like an imposter, but uh, but I felt very comfortable. The excitement, the you know, the excitement at the Tacoma conference felt like when I started into addiction medicine in 1985-86, when it was pioneering times. These were new times, and there was such sparkling, bristling excitement with it. And I get the feeling every time I'm around this movement and and i'm I'm very excited by it because i I think the direction is going to be so healthy for aa uh, that it's it can only do good things for for aa uh, as a whole yeah you know i think that we've already begun to make a difference i'm uh pretty new to the whole secular aa um thing um i've been an aa for a long time uh in july i'll be coming up on 30 years of sobriety. And uh, for 25 of those years, it was just in a traditional AA group. And it was one of those more rigid groups um, that you're describing that was really, a, you know, the, the big book was just an, a, an amazing document. They And we just studied it and, and uh, we wanted to do things just the way they did it back in the 30s. And so that was my AA life until I realized I was an atheist. And then um, I searched out people like me. And that's how I learned, learned about all of this. And now I'm losing my train of thought. It always happens when I start talking about myself. <laughs> well, congratulations, John. I'm, I'm 30 years. Good for you. Yeah, uh, but I can't remember what I was going to say about that. Well, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm reading Ernie Kurtz uh, right now, and I finished uh, Thompson's uh, wonderful biography of Bill W. And the interesting thing about the early roots of Alcoholics Anonymous is they're far from homogeneous. I mean, if you compare the Akron group to the New York group, right. they're yeah. incredibly different from each other. they some of the generalities that have been made about the roots of AA and I mean it it always has been a a conglomerate heterogeneous it, it was never meant to become dogmatic yes. it was never meant to be turned into a religion and and the writings were never meant to be God's written word there were there were they were a start, but it's meant to be a, a, a very fluid program. And any time that that would be the end of it, if if we re- turn it into a religion, turn it into a, right. a fixed and rigid thing, that, that's just not how it happened. Yeah, and I think that was the great strength of AA is that they um, we created this idea that every group is autonomous. So no matter where you go, it would always be, you know, it, it would take on yeah. the personality of that city and that group and that right. and that location. So, you know, that that was the strength of it. And that's like you described the, the New York people and the Cleveland people, the Akron people, very different approaches, you know. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that is a great strength of AA. 
I just thought of a, of a neat research project. Somebody should do this. Take 100 people randomly selected from different AA groups and say, write, a, write me a paragraph on what it means when you say, I work my program. Yeah. What does yeah. that mean? And I bet you the range would be incredible. It would. Even within the community of atheists and agnostics, Yes. There's a lot of diversity and people yeah. are surprised by that. But yeah. even those people who describe themselves as, as atheists, you have atheists who, who, who for them, um, they have no belief in a God or any theology, but they, uh, they consider themselves as spiritual. Yes. Um, you know, uh, there, and then there are other atheists who, who have nothing to do with spirituality, you know, and, and then and we just run all over the, all over the place. You know, there's just, and, and I think that it's important that we allow that to happen, that, that, that we don't force, whether it be an atheist agenda or a religious agenda, that everybody just have whatever explanation or way of describing it that works for them, that makes sense to them, which in my case I agree. has changed anyway. I, I think the test for a good meeting, a good atheist agnostic meeting would be if a person who was highly religious could come to that meeting, share their beliefs and what they do to, to recover from the disease of alcoholism and be loved, respected, and supported in what they're talking about. And that, that's a good meeting. I agree. Yeah. So, you know, um, I think I, where I was going to go with this, one thing I've learned about um, since I've been involved with this whole meeting people from Secular AA is that there's a good number of us who have been involved in general service within Alcoholics Anonymous. We're working within the fellowship. We've made friends and connections with people from other AA groups that are not secular. And we've been able to get a lot of things done. I mean, we've got um, the Grapevine, you know, published a, a, a whole uh, issue uh, dedicated to our stories. They're putting out a book of our stories uh, this year. Uh, the General Service Conference just passed the um, approval to adapt the God Word pamphlet from the United Kingdom. Um, so I think that that we've really been able to already help AA adapt to a changing world. And I think it was our involvement that has helped that process along. So I'm feeling kind of hopeful for AA's future as I start watching this unfold. I don't know if you're, if you're familiar with any of that and if you are starting to sense some, some hope that, that maybe, um, that rigidity, um, is kind of being addressed now. Um, I, I'm, I'm very reassured by what you just said, and and I suspected that that was happening. I made a choice early on uh, in my AA involvement to to split my to split my personality or my professional from my personal life. I I understand that I could be criticized for it because I've spent most of my uh, life somewhat an anonymous in my professional life. But what I decided was that. As an expert in addiction medicine who does an awful lot of influencing the public, that I could be most useful by keeping, not necessarily keeping my history of addiction confidential, but keeping my involvement in 12-step programs to myself. And that way I could be seen to be more than a person with lived experience, I could be seen to be what I thought I was, and that is an expert in the science and clinical practice of addiction medicine. And so 
I chose, and I, I was never very good at doing sponsorship. And my my before I retired, I was so busy, I didn't have a whole lot of time to do service work. So I rationalized and I said, you know, I'm going to stay sober and use my own program on in my private life. But my service is going to be through deepening the field of addiction medicine through my clinical, scientific, and educational work. And I, I don't feel badly about that. I, I like it. But there's a parallel here, and that is this newfound recovery movement that's occurring in Nor North America, led by United States starting in the 1990s, and with organizations such as Faces and Voices in Recovery, and picked up by certain states where the decision makers, like in Connecticut and 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 now in Ohio, uh, places in Illinois, where they've picked up implementing recovery-oriented systems of care, and they're putting some support behind the recovery movement in the community. I think those changes, if they can be sustained, and, and right now, since the last administration, there, we've had some setbacks in, in healthcare in general, but I, I think that this has got legs, that this is going to move. So the parallel between AA institutional change and and our healthcare system in North America, his systems, where ours is very different from yours, uh, I think there's a parallel there. And that, that we can infiltrate and in influence the decision makers. We have to do it on the, on the ground. Mm -hmm. So we have to have the grassroots influence. And that's where the Tacoma Conference, and that's where your very valuable website at, and podcasts come in. But also the decision makers within the within the actual program for survival of AA and 12-step programs. Mm -hmm. Isn't that interesting? I, I, I agree with that. And I think and I think you've done a tremendous service with your work and, okay. and taking your experience as a person in recovery and out into the professional community like that, I think is tremendous. So just to wind things up, Ray, um, I understand that you'll be speaking at the International Conference of Secular AA in Toronto this August. Any thoughts about that? Uh, I'm, I've, I've just been told that I'm no longer going to be a breakout session, that I'll be speaking to the whole convention. Yeah. So I'm I'm kind of terrified and <laughs> and humbled by it all. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like that old imposter, you know, who came into a treatment center a day late because I was uh, because I missed my plane because I had my last what might be my last drink and I got drunk and missed, <laughs> missed the plane. Well, I feel kind of like, wait a minute, what if they discover I, you know, I, I'm just an imposter and I don't know anything at all. <laughs> I'm honored, actually. Yeah, it'll be a lot of fun. Have you been, did you go to any of the other conferences? They had one in Santa Monica and then they had the one in Austin. I No, I discovered the AA Agnostica website and I had been starting to read it and I think both of those had occurred okay. before before I even got involved in starting to follow this this movement. So know that my very first large organization of, of like-minded people was in Tacoma. So I'm delighted and looking forward to the Toronto uh, conference. <clears throat> the first time I experienced that was in Santa Monica, and that really changed my whole trajectory in AA. It actually... Oh, um, did it? Yeah, I, I was kind of, you know, when I got to that place where I was realizing I was an atheist, I wasn't sure if I was going to stay in AA or not and how I was going to fit in. But after mm -hmm. meeting all these people, I got more involved in AA than I've ever been and more excited about it than I've ever been. 
And uh, so, so I just love it. But the friendships that I made in Santa Monica, I still have to this day. In fact, one of those good friends, Doris, she's our chief editor for AA Beyond Belief. And I, I work with her all the time. And so we've been friends since 2014 because of this. So, and I always make new friends at every conference. So it's a lot of fun. So John, let me ask you a question. At, at, at Tacoma, I, I noticed a, a, a delightful observation. And that was that there were a lot of people with more than 25 years, more than 20 years uh, recovery at the conference, a huge number. And of the people that I listened to tell their story, there was a, very frequently a common trajectory that they, for them, AA worked for a long time and they fit in. They thought they fit in for a long time. And then gradually they became more aware as they they sort of the recovery was so successful they outgrew aa emotionally spiritually right. and and so they ended up being very uncomfortable and and they thank goodness they found this and they got a new rejuvenation or a, a new brand new excitement about their recovery uh, and is is that a common trajectory I think it is. I think yeah. you've got these two, you have these two groups of people. You have the people like me who, uh, they may have been religious, they may not have been religious, but whatever, they just kind of fell in line with the AA program and they learned the language of the, um, of AA meetings and they were very comfortable until they started embracing their, their secular point of view and thinking about their program in a more secular way and trying to express that in meetings in a more secular way. And then, and you have what you already described as a kind of a growing rigidity within a lot of AA groups. So we had, we had that kind of a, a conflict. And I'm thinking, cause, um, that for me, it started from reading some books, um, Richard Dawkins and yes. Christopher Hitchens. And I think that there's been like a growing awareness, um, of just in society as, as a whole about, I don't know, this, secular view, you know, and so maybe people in AA were kind of reflecting what was going on in the general society. But so yeah, I think that is a fairly common experience. We got to this point yeah. where it's like, wow, I can't be who I am at my meeting. I've changed. I don't I don't feel this way anymore. But then you also have the group of people who have for their entire life have always had this atheistic um point of view. And either were comfortable with it, you know, and never had that, never had to have that conflict. So mm. yeah, there's a lot of diversity, but I think it's fairly common. The experience of all of a sudden realizing, wow, I've changed. I no longer can say these things like I, that I used to say or believe. Yeah. You know, in, in 30 years, well, more than 30 years of clinical practice of addiction medicine, I think of the failures, the people who I saw who should have been able to make it into recovery who didn't, and how many of them, when they came back for a reevaluation or a recheck visit, said, "I just can't handle the all the religious stuff," and made a decision based on that to not affiliate with any mutual support group, and because of that, they didn't make it. And I think if this movement grows and is more available and and people are aware that there's a secular option i think that w we can just be more useful to more people for recovering from this disease and what a lot of people um are learning now is those of us who stayed we do so because we love aa 
And that's yeah. why we're so involved in it because we do believe in it. And so like you, as you described, this is a movement that is very much within Alcoholics Anonymous. We're not some right. separate outside force. Pretty cool. Pretty cool. <laughs> so thank you very much for taking some time to speak with me for this podcast. That was very generous and kind of you to do that. Um, and it's just, uh, it's been really uh, a pleasure speaking with you this morning. And uh, I enjoyed the talk in Tacoma and I look forward to meeting you in Toronto and listening to your talk there as well. The pleasure has been mutual. Thanks, John. Well, that concludes another episode of AA Beyond Belief, the podcast. Thank you for listening, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Dr. Baker. I certainly learned a lot. Uh, we mentioned the International Conference of Secular AA, where he'll be speaking this August. To learn more about that, visit the website, secularaa.com. That's secularaa.com. 